himself and say, he will hold you fast. Let's turn in God's word uh, then uh, to uh, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'll actually have you take a seat. Uh, We'll be reading a longer passage this morning. It's page uh, 259 in the Bibles around you. Uh, We've been uh, moving very uh, quickly, uh, a bird's eye view of the Old Testament, as it were, and and each week we land on one passage. Uh, We were in the book of Exodus uh, last week, and now we're all the way up in the book of 2 Samuel 7. We'll try to bridge the gap, Lord willing, uh, in the midst of the sermon. Uh, But we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and what is called God's covenant with David, with King David. So hear God's word, and then we'll dive into it together. Now when the king lived in his house, uh, the Lord had given him, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, I see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up this people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word for us. Let me pray. Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that we would hear from you through the work of the Spirit and the preached word of God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
People are looking for stability in a shaky world, one author says. They want something that they can get a hold of that's firm and sure and an anchor in the midst of all of this instability in which they are living. Is that not true? In a shaky world, people are hungry for something sure, something steadfast, something they can take hold of. And this is true in many things, economically and otherwise, but when it comes to our life, when it comes to our faith, we need something permanent. Uh, We need something established, something that's not fickle, uh, right? When relationships splinter around us, uh, when policies and economies and countries come and go, uh, when it seems like the, the winds are chasing us every which direction, we uh, need something that is firm, rooted, permanent, uh, never changing, merciful, powerful, pervasive, all-encompassing, able to save, able to keep us, able to hold us fast all the way to the end. A friend, the steadfast love of God is like that. It's like a steadfast anchor for the soul. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have received and rested upon him alone, uh, then you have this anchor for your soul, uh, no matter what happens in the world around us. We've been looking at that steadfast love in this series and tracing it through the Old Testament and, and looking at different aspects of it. Today, the focus is the permanence of steadfast love. The, the permanence of steadfast love. We're going to look at three things in the text where we see the permanence, of the establishment, the, the surety of steadfast love on display. And the first is this. Uh, see the permanence of steadfast love on display, number one, uh, in the building of a house. In the building of a house. And uh, young people, I was thinking of you, and anyone can do this exercise. As we look back through the text... Uh, Young people, make note of every time you see the word house in this passage. It's pretty staggering. Um, And and maybe we can compare notes afterward how many times you found it. Uh, But you could see the theme of this passage here. So the steadfast love, permanence seen in the building of a house. And we focus first here on David and his desire. Uh, Let me read verses 1 through 3 again, and then we'll talk about David and sort of get up to speed. Where are we on the timeline here? Uh, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest uh, from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, uh, for the Lord is with you. And so you see King David, um, uh, called the greatest king of Israel, not a perfect king. Even, even the best human king we could muster was not perfect. Um, but uh, if, if you go from where we went last week, we, there's a lot between there and here. Uh, God's people uh, at the Exodus were given the law. They had just come out of the land of Egypt. We'll talk more about sort of their journey in the wilderness. Eventually, they're planted in Canaan in this promised land. The judges rule for a time, and it's a very ugly time in the history of God's people. And the book of Judges wants to convince you, uh, you'll remember the line that's repeated throughout the book of Judges, uh, the people did whatever was in their heart, whatever they wanted to do. There was no king in Israel. The book of Judges uh, wants to preach, we need a king, 
and so a king comes. Uh, first Saul, who is not just an imperfect king, but an unfaithful king. Uh, he was a king like the kings of the nations, uh, strong and handsome and, 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 and going to war. It, it, the people basically wanted a king just like the nations, and they got what they wanted in Saul. Uh, very quickly, Saul falls from grace, and you have David, anointed king over uh, Israel. As you saw in the text, he was called from the sheepfold. He was the youngest son. He was brought to be king, the, the most unlikely one. Um, and here we have him uh, much, in some ways, further into his reign. Uh, he has been established. Uh, the ark of God has come to Jerusalem right before this. Uh, the people of God are starting to be planted more and more. And you see David's desire. He's, he's like, wait a minute, I have a palace, I have a house that's been built for me. Uh, but God, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes God's dwelling with his people, it still lives in a tent uh, that has to be set up and torn down, a temporary dwelling place. And you could see David has a good desire. He's saying, wait a minute, these things don't match up. And so he ponders this and he says, okay, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. Uh, but you have God's response then in verses 4 uh, through 7. Uh, through Nathan the prophet, uh, the prophets would speak to the kings. And in this case, uh, Nathan, Nathan hears from the Lord. And uh, you could see in verse 4, this is what God says to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up this people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Uh, it's interesting, God's response is essentially, David, it's a good desire, but you're missing the picture here. Um, I have been traveling with the people of Israel. Wherever they have gone, I have gone. Um, literally, uh, in the text, um, you don't see it in the English, but at the end of verse 6, he's, he says he's been dwelling in a tent, and then we would probably say like a comma, uh, the tabernacle. Uh, I have been dwelling in the tabernacle with the people uh, from the time I brought them out of Egypt until now. And the point is, I have been with my people. And later in the text, he says, David, I have been with you wherever you have gone. And so even though it was in God's plan that a temple would be built under Solomon, David's son, he's, he's saying, David, I have been with you wherever you went. Just like in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, uh, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so David has a good desire, but God's giving him a, a bigger sense of the picture. That's sort of the, the first response here. I have been with the people uh, ever, well, before this, but ever since I brought them out of Egypt. Uh, I gave them the law at Sinai. Uh, even when uh, they sent the spies into the land and they were so afraid to go into the land that I, I punished them with 40 years in the wilderness, still I was with them. Still I was with them. Uh, when Joshua and the people went in and, and took the land and, and didn't do it perfectly and, and sinned and didn't complete the work, I was still with them. Even in the judges, there was good judges and bad judges, and all throughout it, I was with the people of God, as I am to this day. And that's what God has to say to David in the first response. 
And the second response goes further. Not only, David, are you missing the, the picture, I've been with you, I'm tabernacling with you. Number two, I, I actually have a different plan. I will build your house. Not only has God built physically David's house, the royal palace, but he will build for him a house. He will establish David. You, you see this in, in verses 8 and following. Uh, Therefore, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And we'll see more on that in in just a moment. He's taken him from the sheepfolds. He's established his reign. And then as we'll see in a moment, if you go over to verse 12, um, sorry, verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. And so God's response is, I have been with you wherever you went. And by the way, I have bigger plans. I'm actually going to build a house for you. And, and there's that word all throughout this text. Uh, at least by my count, verses 1, 2, 5, 6, 7, 11, 13, 16. If I've missed one, let me know. But all throughout this text, God is saying, I will establish you, David. I will establish the people of God, verses 10 through 11. I will establish your dynasty after you, verses 11 and 12. I will establish that kingdom forever, verses 13 and 17, through 17. People are hungry for something sure and established and eternal. And this covenant with David points to a kingdom that will never end, that all those who trust in Jesus have a place in. Who get to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A people of God, are you secure then in the steadfast love of the Lord? So we see the permanence of the steadfast love in the, in the building of a house. Number two, in the planting of a people. In the planting of a people. And we, we brushed right up on those verses. Verse 10, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. That word dwell is another one that if you highlighted how many times in this text that they would live, that they would dwell. God is, uh, is preserving a people and, and a place for them. Uh, you'll remember this series started in Genesis 3.15, and in one sense, we're just seeing the continued fulfillment of what God said there. Uh, God said there to the serpent who had tricked Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And remember we said that to summarize that promise, God said right at the very beginning of the Bible, there will be a people. I will preserve a people Uh, From here until the end of time, there will be a people of God. No matter how small the remnant is, I will preserve a people. And number two, from that people, there will come a son. We will see that in the third point. But here, God is just fulfilling that initial promise. There will be a people. There will be a people. And it's incredible, isn't it, that there's still a people of God 
even at this point in redemptive history? I remember my old pastor would often say, um, I know that the church is a supernatural thing because if it was a human institution, it would have died out a long time ago. <laughs> How much more as we look at the Old Testament saints, the ups and downs. I mean, remember the law was given at Sinai. The Ten Commandments, and, and, and how, how long after that were they forming these two golden calves and worshiping them and saying, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt? And, and this is the story of God's people from that point on, where you have these high notes, but you have all these low notes of sin. You have the high places. As I said, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God in his wrath could have justly wiped out his people many times, and yet he fulfilled the promise that he made. There will be a people. So that through the wilderness, through the conquest, through the judges, even through Saul, this unfaithful king, God has always preserved a people. And this is a promise that God always will. It won't be long after this that David, with whom, whom this very covenant is being made by Second Samuel 11, we have David's great sin with Bathsheba of adultery and murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. If it was up to David's performance or the people of God's performance, the people of God would never continue, and yet God fulfills his promise, even through the reign of David, even through Solomon who falls from grace, even through, we'll see in the weeks to come, a divided kingdom, even through exile, uh, even through the return from exile, so that by the time of Jesus, as we celebrate around uh, Jesus coming at Christmas, uh, you would think, how is there possibly a faithful people left? And yet we're told that there are those who are longing for the redemption of Israel. God preserves a people. He holds them fast through the ups and downs and the sin and all of it. People are hungry for something sure and lasting. And the people of God, by the grace of God, established on the covenant of grace, we are assured that we will continue till the end of time. Do you find that comfort in God's steadfast love? Lastly, let's see the permanence of steadfast love. And number three, in the coming of a son. In the coming of a son. Remember, we said that, that Genesis 3.15 promised there will be a people... And number two, there will come a son. And so all throughout redemptive history, you have the people of God being addressed collectively. And then you have these individuals that God calls especially. Uh, we've seen that in Noah and Abraham and Moses and David here. And each one of them uh, is sort of an imperfect uh, representation of the Christ who would to come. And so David here, that individual. But look at these promises that are being made to David uh, let's uh, jump in at verse, uh, the tail end of verse 11. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, meaning his dynasty, not just a physical house, but his house will continue. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As we read that text, knowing what we know, uh, this side of the New Testament, this side of Jesus coming, it's pretty much impossible to read that text and not think, right, of Jesus, the Son of God, whose kingdom is established forever. And, and, and rightly we do that. Uh, even the language here used, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Uh, this would have been shocking language for the original hearers. Now, there's a sense in which sometimes the kings of Israel were called the sons of God, uh, with sort of a lowercase s. So it, it wasn't unheard of. But this very personal God saying, this will be my son and, and, he, uh, uh, and I will be his father, that language remained uh, sort of unique and uncommon enough so that you remember in Jesus' day when he would pray and call God his father, people wanted to stone him. They were saying, this is blasphemy. Nobody can talk to God this way uh, and call him father. And yet in Christ, we get to pray our father uh, do we not? Uh, but, but here this is pointing to this unique, um, and, uh, unique relationship that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ himself. But, but before we get there, first this is a promise to David, and, and this does have to do with even David's son, uh, Solomon. Uh, there's some initial fulfillment that then points to a later uh, fulfillment. And... and um, I, I know you're astute, and so you, you probably have this question because in verse 14, you think of Jesus. I, I, uh, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And you're like, that's Jesus. No one else fulfills that. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes and with the stripes of the sons of men. And now you're thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and you'd be right. Uh, Jesus is the one who did not commit iniquity, uh, who did not need discipline uh, from his father. And so first, this is fulfilled in, in these human kings, in David, in Solomon. As I said, David himself will soon need the discipline of the Lord. David will sin grievously and commit murder and adultery, and there will be even earthly consequences for his sin. And he points in, in the next verse to Saul as this counterexample, uh, that God's steadfast love, in a sense, was taken from Saul. And we're thinking, wait a minute, steadfast love, that's covenant love, that's permanent love. In what sense does, was God's love given and then taken from Saul? I, I think the language here is meant to be provocative in the sense that uh, looking on, it seemed as if Saul was following the Lord. It, as we say, it, it worked until it didn't uh, with Saul's reign. But we can look back and say he had never received and rested upon the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, he uh, received power, as it were. He utilized that, sometimes good, sometimes bad. He sinned against the Lord. When he was confronted with his sin, he self-justified. Uh, he showed that his greatest fear was his being caught and what the consequences would be. A David, on the other hand, you might think, well, why does David get to be established in this steadfast love and, and, and not have it taken away? Is, it, is David more pure than Saul? Is, is David's track record just better than Saul? Just sort of 
if you just do a pros and cons? No, I mean, right after this, we said it, it, chapter 11, but you can keep going. David does many other sinful things. And yet it's interesting, when he's confronted by Nathan, the same prophet, uh, we, we, we get Psalm 51, right? And Psalm 51 is, is this, it just shows the fruit of a truly repentant heart. Uh, when you read Psalm 51, you don't get the sense that David's just trying to cover his bases. And like, oh, if I could just pray eloquently enough, maybe I won't have these consequences. You know, it starts like, no, Lord, you're just in your judgment against me. I have a sin against you and you alone. He knows whom he sinned against, a holy God. He knows that God's justice would be just to take the breath away from David right then. And, and you could tell his greatest fear in Psalm 51 is not, oh no, will my kingdom totter or will there be earthly consequences? He says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. Oh Lord, don't cast me away. If I don't have you, I have nothing. And so we see the heart of a truly repentant a sinner before a holy God who has received grace upon grace. This is the steadfast love that we're talking about here that David needed, that any other king of Israel after him in his line that God establishes needed, that they either rested upon, trusted in, um, or they were cast away like Saul. And Jesus is not like that. Jesus didn't need to endure the stripes of men and the rod of man, the punishments to chastise and shape him and, and, and remind him to follow the Lord because Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb. Uh, the, the greater David, the greater Solomon, uh, even David the greatest that we could muster on a human level was nothing compared to Christ who came. Uh, this perfect king, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, sinless life, was always faithful to his father. He didn't need the stripes of men. He didn't deserve them, and yet he bore the stripes of men, did he not? And yet the rod of men fell upon him. Uh, the crucible of the cross, uh, he was nailed to the cross, before his friends and family and those who would mock him, not because he deserved to be there, but because he was bearing the sin of David. He was bearing your sin. If you receive and trust upon him for salvation, if Psalm 51 is a prayer that you can read and say, Amen, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I have sinned against you and you alone. You would be just to put me to death, not just physically, but eternally. And I'm throwing myself on your mercy and on your steadfast love. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you would pray that prayer, just as David and all the saints of old, then you are established in this steadfast love. You are a part of this covenant with David, which finds its fulfillment in this covenant with Christ when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It is established. It is sure. It is never-ending. 
so that he now is your king. Uh, when he comes, in the, uh, uh, remember when he's announced to Mary, the, the angel says to him, he is, uh, he is, uh, his name will be Jesus, which means God saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Don't you see that promise of the angel? It's just dripping with 2 Samuel 7, right? He will be a son of the Most High. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Even David's earthly kingdom and line, actually, it, you might not know, it, it ran for about 400 years. And in, in human terms, there's been no other dynasty like that. Uh, a sort of a single line that has lasted that long. And yet you think of human history and you think 400 years is just a blink of an eye. Um, it's just a blink of an eye. Uh, David was a, a, a great king. David's kingdom and then under Solomon was a great kingdom, but it was temporary. God's people did go into exile, and they needed Jesus who would come, uh, who would be a king, who would give true rest from our enemies, from the devil himself, and one day from all of our physical enemies, would gather a people for himself, establishing them, planting them, Right As we sing, praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. His unchanging love. Everything around us is changeable, shifting. People are hungry for something sure. Something that they can take hold of. Or we'd say, someone to take hold of them. This Lord, this God of steadfast love uh, is yours in Christ Jesus. He puts his name upon you. He holds you fast if you will but trust in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. That even here in the Old Testament, even with an imperfect king like David, you show us your abundant mercy and steadfast love. I pray that your people would be firmly established. Lord, that we would... Uh, not, uh, that you would give us great assurance through Christ, that you would give us great boldness through Christ, and that you would give us uh, grace and mercy to fight uh, the indwelling sin and, and see sanctification over the days and the years. And so would you establish your people firmly in your steadfast love, and would you call others to join uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray this 